0: My name is Cecil. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> I'm from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Canada. And that is a long ways away from here. And I'm very grateful to be here. Matter of fact, I'm grateful to be anywhere. But a session by the sea is really something. And I've really enjoyed it in the last couple of days. And I've been watching people and, uh, I'm really amazed at the way people get along handling a big deal such as this. And it reminded me of a story. Didn't really. I intended to tell it all along. But uh, (laughs) seeing there was a golf game today, uh, it reminded me of the story of the golfer that was sitting in the clubhouse one day all by himself and he'd had a bad day. And he was sitting there, and he said, Oh, God. And a voice came down and said, Yes, what's trouble? <laughs> he looked up, and he said, That you, God? And God said, Yeah, that's me. <laughs> and he said, God?" says, What seems to be the trouble? And he said, Well, I just can't putt. So God says, Well, tomorrow when you're out, just move your right hand around a little bit on the putter, and probably everything will be all right. So the golfer, seeing he had him on the, on the line for... You know, he thought he'd better talk to him, and uh, so he, he said, to him, tell me, God, do they have a golf course up in heaven? And God said, uh, just a second, I'll check. And he went away, and he came back in a few minutes, and he said, I got some good news, and I got some bad news. He said, first of all, for the good news, he said, they have the most beautiful golf course that I've ever seen. And the golfer says, well, what can be the bad news? And he said, Your tea off time is 10 after 8 tomorrow morning. (laughs) So you see, I think it's kind of important that the committee, not only the committee, but all of us, (laughs) are at good terms with our fellow man because we never know when our tea off time is going to be. As I said, I was an alcoholic and I'm not going to tell you too much about my drinking tonight because I don't think it really matters but I can tell you this I'm not here by mistake I did drink and I got here because I had a big mouth when I drank and one night when I was drinking and I was also a poker player I uh, got in a little trouble in this poker game I did something that a great big guy didn't appreciate something like cheating And this big guy that weighed about 275 pounds, he put his big fist in my big mouth. (laughs) And that's how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. We had a fight. Or I should say he had a fight. (laughs) He hit me and I hit the floor and I got up and he hit me and I hit the floor. And we did that a whole bunch of times. And I thought he weighed about 118 pounds, you know, because those big guys, they got smaller all the time when I was drinking. And finally, I, I just stayed down there, not because I wanted to, but because I couldn't get up. And I, uh, I had lived this way for quite a while. I was only 27 years of age. I didn't drink till I was 16 years of age. I, was, I wanted to be an athlete, and I became a pretty good athlete. And uh, when I was 16 I heard our speaker last night say that he ran away. Well, I didn't really run away. I, I was I didn't like the discipline of my church, and I didn't like the discipline of my home, and I didn't like the discipline of my school. So when I was 16 years of age, I I ran away from that discipline. And to show you, I was a little swifter than most people are today. I I ran into the army. And I found out what discipline was all about. But I also found out something else. That first night that I was in the service, I went downtown with the rest of the men with that big uniform on, and I had my first drink in my life, and it was just beautiful. All of a sudden, I was talking to everybody. Somebody didn't like what I said, and all of a sudden, I had muscles, and I told him where he could head in. Then we went to a dance, and God, I was great. I was Canada's own Fred Astaire. <laughs> I got to take a girl home, and God, I was Charles Boyer and Clark Gable and all of those lovers put together. But the next morning I was just that scared little farm boy that had joined the arm and the neck of the day before. But every night we used to go downtown, and this great thing would happen to me, and it was beautiful. I became an instructor in the Army, and things were good, and I loved the Army. But when I was 17, I got kicked out of the Army. I went back home, and I got a good job in an aircraft factory, and I drank and told them all about my Army experiences. And I worked for about six or seven months, and I got tired of that responsibility. I didn't know it then, but I know it now, I just didn't like responsibility. So I ran once again, and I ran back into the Army. Told them I'd never been in before, and this time I was a genius. (laughs) I became an instructor right away, I got recommended for my commission, I was 18 years of age, and I'd love to stand here tonight and tell you I was an officer in the Canadian Army, but I got kicked out when I was 18. And I went back to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and I got a job in a newspaper, in the advertising department. And I did a good job, and I liked it. But I got kicked out of that job because I didn't like the responsibility, and I, I didn't get fired or anything, but things got just too tough for me, and so I ran away from that. And I ran into the Navy. And there I settled down to a bit of serious drinking. <laughs> and I was a genius once again, told him I'd never been in the service before. By this time I was an accomplished liar. And I got recommended for my commission. I went away to officer's training. And I'd love to stand here and tell you that I was an option in the Canadian Navy. <laughs> but I got kicked out of officer's training. It seems that another officer didn't appreciate me telling him what to do with his ship. And I saw a ship out in the Atlantic Ocean today. You know, it's a physical impossibility for him to do with that ship what I told him to do with it. (laughs) And I didn't get kicked out of the Navy. I just got kicked out of officer training. And I became a gunner and a merchant ship. And I sailed all over the world, and I drank all over the world. And I was just talking to Pete, and Pete and I have been to some of the same places. And it's on the program that, that my name is Cecil. Well, I guess it is, but everybody's always called me Cease, and I love the name Cease. And I have to tell you this, because I was talking to Pete, and I was down in the South Pacific with a lot of your people. As a matter of fact, I, I did some work for you people, and I, I just want to tell you about it so you'll show a little gratitude to me. <laughs> we were in Melbourne, Australia, and we were, we'd unloaded our cargo, and one of your ships it was loaded with tanks. It had been torpedoed up in New Guinea, and they, towed you, they, they salvaged it and towed it back in, and we were the only ship that was empty, and the government ordered us to take your tanks up to New Guinea. I don't mean your drunken tanks. I mean your real, genuine tanks. And, and we'd had a cargo of whiskey, and so we were in good shape. But we took your tanks up to New Guinea, and I'd like you to thank me after the meeting for it, and we the Japanese people were a little narrow about that and they shot at us and everything and and we were coming back out going back to Australia and our own aircraft came out to meet us to escort us back in and the captain was drunk and the gunnery officer was drunk and everybody was drunk and they thought it was the Japanese people coming back and the captain ordered us to start shooting at them and I was in charge of this big forward gun, and uh, suddenly the gunnery officer realized that we were shooting at our own ships. And he got a little panicky. Now you must visualize he was up on a bridge, something like this, and I'm down below there with his big gun, and I don't know what he got excited about. Because we weren't hitting them anyway.
1: <laughs>
0: but he gets his big megaphone out, and you fellas that were in the Navy, you, you know what I mean? He got his big megaphone out and he screamed down at me. And he said, Cease fire! (laughs) And so I fired. (laughs) If I had stayed there another 20 minutes, I'd have been a Japanese ace. (laughs) But that is is an absolute true story. I want you to know that. But I came back to the Navy, and I, I had a great time in the Navy and did many things like that. And and uh, ended up back while I was in the Navy. I got married to a beautiful little girl, and I'd love to stand here and tell you that uh, I led her a beautiful life, but I didn't. Uh, I'm still married to her, which is a miracle. She left a few times but couldn't do without me, and she came back.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I got home, and I start. I started to celebrate the end of the war, and I started getting jobs, and I started losing jobs. I celebrated the beginning of the Korean War that our speaker talked about last night. I guess I celebrated the end of that. And then I got in that great poker game, and I got in that great fight, and I ended up in hospital. I know now why I became an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic because I'm a Protestant, and I grew up in a Catholic community, and I was the only Protestant that lived there, and I grew up hating Catholics, and I have to admit something, I don't think too much of some of you as yet, (laughs) because they didn't treat me good. As a matter of fact, they used to call the bingos in Latin so that I couldn't understand them. (laughs) And I knew all about resentments before I ever came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But this night that I was in hospital and I was in a big private ward that I I got with a bad check, (laughs) and I was there for about five days, and you know that there wasn't one soul in that city that came to visit me. Not even my family. I guess I like to think that nobody knew I was there. And then the doctor on the fifth day, he sat down in my bed, and fortunately for me, he was a man that I'd been in the service with. And he said, "Cease. I have built you up physically. I can't do another thing for you. He said, you were bad in the service You were an alcoholic then? He said, things are worse since you got home. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And he said, well, I would suggest you join Alcoholics Anonymous. But he didn't leave it at that. He went out and he got two men from Alcoholics Anonymous to come and see me. And I can remember those two men coming to see me. And I knew both of them. One was the sloppiest drunk in all of Canada. And he came in and he was dressed up. And he looked good. He had a beautiful brown suit on and a silk shirt and a bow tie. Shoes were shined. He was clean. I knew that something had happened to Bill. The other guy was Earl. I'd been in the service with Earl. And Earl had come home and... After he arrived home, he got in a little bit of trouble. He hit a taxi driver on the head. One night when he was drunk, and he got charged with robbery with violence, and he went to penitentiary for five years, and he found Alcoholics Anonymous within the penitentiary. And I knew something had happened to Earl because of the look on his face. But he, he looked good. And they didn't have to talk because I knew that something had happened to them. But they did talk. And they talked loud, and I thought the whole hospital were listening to them. And on the Saturday morning, I got out of that hospital. Had a difficult time getting out of the hospital because that little Catholic nun, she couldn't find a place to deposit that check of mine. And because I was Protestant, she wouldn't let me out of the hospital until such times I paid the check. (laughs) And so I, I phoned the only person that my credit was any good with, and that was my bootlegger. And he came and got me out of hospital. Probably had he known what I was going to do, he'd have left me there, <laughs> because I've never given him any business since that day. He took me downtown to a little restaurant, and they had an emergency meeting. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. The whole group came, And I wish you could have seen me that morning. I've always loved good clothes. And I've always worn good clothes. Today I pay for them. (laughs) But that morning my shirt was covered with blood. My suit was torn from the fight I'd been in. And I wasn't looking too good. But all of that group came out to visit me. And I'll never forget them. That was January the 16th, 1952, because of you people, because of a loving God as I understand them, and because of all of the wonderful people in Alcoholics Anonymous that I've met. I haven't had to have a drink since that day. That night we went to our first meeting. It was a mixed meeting, and they took Babe and I to this meeting. And I'll never forget it because they had a social before the meeting. And they played, it it was a Saturday night, just like this. But there were only about 30 or 35 people there. And I remember they played these stupid games like pin the tail on the donkey. And it really wasn't my idea of a Saturday night. And I sat there. And there were some old people there. I was 27 years old. There were people there that were in their fifties, just really old, old people. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know whether I belong here or not. But you know, there was a little guy there by the name of Bobby Motherwell, and Bobby has now passed away. But Bobby came up to me that night and he put his arm around me and he said, Cease, we want you and we need you and we love you. And that may not mean anything to any of you people. But I didn't think anybody wanted me. I didn't think anybody needed me. And my wife had told me that nobody loved me. (laughs) And here this little guy, all dressed up and looking good, he did this to me. And tonight if you see anybody in this audience, and you probably will, somebody that's looking a little bit down the dumps, somebody that maybe as a football in their stomach. And you can tell it by the looks on their face. Tell them that you want them and you need them, and you love them. Because it meant so much to me over 30 years ago. And then they had this meeting that night. And I can remember a guy standing up and saying he was sober for a year. And I sat in the back and I thought, liar couldn't be much of a drunk if you can stay sober for a year (laughs) and after the meeting a couple of the old-timers that were sober about 18 months (laughs) they they took me into another room and they said Cece, you're going to hear a lot of things you're going to hear that there's no must in Alcoholics Anonymous but they said tomorrow morning at eight o'clock there's a meeting here and you must be here (laughs) And I'm glad they talked to me like that, because that's the only language that I understood. And I've never stopped going. I have never stopped going to those meetings. I go twice a week to my regular meeting. And I'm privileged to be doing what I'm doing tonight almost every weekend somewhere. And I didn't really want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought I would come for a little while and get my creditors off my back. I owed about $6,200 when I came to AA. I hate to mention that small little sum when I know you people are so wealthy down this area. (laughs) But that was in 1952. And if you put that into inflationary terms, it's probably about $20,000. And I didn't owe it for anything. I just owed it. (laughs) You know. (laughs) You see, I came here by way of a poker game. (laughs) And I owed it to some strange people. But I know I just thought, well, I'll come and get these people off my back and then maybe I can go back out and drink again. Because Alcoholics Anonymous just didn't appeal to me. I was something like uh, the three alcoholic rabbits. I don't know whether you've ever seen an alcoholic rabbit or whether you even know what a rabbit is. But back in Canada we have rabbits. In my business we call them (laughs) minks. But I'm not talking, I just threw that in. But (laughs) I'm not talking about ordinary Saturday night drunken rabbits. I'm talking about real, genuine alcoholic rabbits. They sit out by the fence and their ears are drooping down. And there were three of them. And they were called foot and foot, foot and foot, foot, foot. And foot, foot used to phone him. Foot, 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 and he'd say, "Let's pick up old foot, and we'll go down to the bar." So foot, 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 pick up old foot, and they'd go down to the bar. And one night, foot, foot was sitting talking to foot, 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 and foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, "Where's foot?" And foot, foot said to foot, 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 he said, "Well, old foot was here just a minute ago, but he went outside." So foot, foot, foot and foot, foot went outside. They found poor old foot. Foot was dead. So foot, foot said to foot, 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 "What do you think we should do with foot?" Foot, foot, foot said to foot, he said, Well, I think we should take him down to the funeral home. After the funeral, foot, foot said to foot, 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 he said, What do you think old foot died for? Foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, Well, I think he was an alcoholic. And foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, Well, do you think we're alcoholic? And foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, Well, we're drinking quite a bit. And foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, Well, do you think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous? And foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, might as well. We got one foot in the grave anyway, he said. And that's what I thought about Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought you had to have one foot in the grave. And I was 27 years of age. But I stayed sober just by pats on the back. You know, people used to, these old people used to say to me, you're doing a fine job, young fellow. And it was just beautiful. I'd been waiting and looking for this for years. And I broke my anonymity to anybody, everybody especially financial institutions. (laughs) I would tell them how horrible I was and what had happened to me and try to get some money to pay this debt off. And I just had a beautiful time. We went to deals like this, not nearly as big, but everywhere. And, And people would pat me on the back, and I just had a beautiful time. And then a horrible thing happened in our group. Some younger members came in. And they walked right by me, and they went and talked to the older members. And the older members walked by me and went talk talked to the newer members. And there I was, I was a middle member. <laughs> and I don't care whether you're an Alateen, Al-Anon, or Alcoholics Anonymous. One day this is going to happen to you. And it's bad, because all of a sudden you're just like a hole in a donut, you're nothing. You just stand out there in the middle of the floor. And I thought about going out and coming back in and getting all this treatment again.
1: <laughs>
0: and I share that with you because this may happen to you. But just about that time, we had a guy in our group by the name of Ernie Sear, and, and Ernie's now passed away. Everybody I know has passed away. <laughs> but, but we asked Ernie to chair our meetings. And we have discussion meetings where I come from, and Ernie said, well, I'll chair the meetings providing we do one thing. And we said, what's that? And he says, well, I want to start the steps, and I want us to, as a group, to do the steps in sequence, and he said, I don't care who comes in, because up to that moment, what we were doing, if we'd get up to step three and someone came in, we'd go back to step one, and we'd be discussing step eight, and we didn't know anything about step five, and it was just chaos. And so he said, we're going to go through the steps as a group, and we're not going to talk about them, we're going to do them. And that's the experience that I'm going to share with you tonight. The experience I've had since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because we took a look at step one, where we admitted we're powerless over alcohol. And I found out there was a second part to it. That our lives had become unmanageable. And I had an unmanageable life as far as money was concerned. I told you I came to Alcoholics Anonymous owing $6,200. I got a really good job in the fur business. My boss decided that he didn't like all of these phone calls and he took me to the bank and he endorsed my note for $6,200 and I didn't pay them off but he and the bank manager sent the checks to everybody. Uh, They were a little untrustworthy. (laughs) And he made me sign a paper that never again would my wife and I charge anything. We both had to sign the paper. Three years later, he bailed me out for (laughs) $7,500. For you see, I had an unmanageable life as far as money was concerned. And I know none of you people have that. But just supposing there's someone just coming in today, and he's got a little trouble, or an Al-Anon's got a little trouble with financial problems. I just have to share it with you. If you are for Pete's sake's faith it because it almost caused me to drink again. For you see I found out that financial problems have nothing to do with money. Has a lot to do with big shotism. <laughs> has a lot to do with pride has a lot to do with ego. For you see, I was the kind of a person that if I owed, a, if owed somebody $400, I wanted to be the big shot and walk up and say, here's the $400 I owe you. Had too much pride to tell them that I can only afford to pay you $25 this month. And it could cause you to be a thief, and it could cause you to be a cheat, and a liar, or a bigger liar than you already are. Now, I'm not saying that about you. I'm telling you what happened to me. I can remember going home one day. And you know what these Al Anon women are like. Babe said, I thought you said you paid so and so. And the big shot said, If I said I paid them, I paid them. <laughs> you know. And she said, Well, why would they phone me today and tell me they're going to cut the phone off? You know what I did? I went, first of all, through my food. Right all into the sink. Two sweet little girls sitting there watching their sober daddy. Went to the wall, removed the phone from the wall, and informed her that they would be not calling her again. And that they wouldn't be cutting the phone off. I cut it off. And then I went into the front room and pouted. A lot of people think that they're talking about an unmanageable life when we're drinking. I still carried on that unmanageable life sober. And to show you that I've changed just a little bit, not too many years ago I owed a manufacturer $10,000. That's not a lot of money in my business because the chairman told you I'm in the fur coat business but it's a lot of money in the middle of July when it's about 96 above. (laughs) And he was phoning me and writing me and saying some unkind things to me and threatening to close my business. And so I wrote him a letter. And I told him that I loved his merchandise, had some of it sold with small down payments, that I would love fall dating. And then I threw a little philosophy at him. I said that, if I was walking down a railroad track and I had 10 miles to go, it would seem like a long distance. But if I took it a telephone pole at a time, it would see me, seem even further. But I'd finally get there. And I signed it, yours truly, Cecil E. Cargo, manager of Cecil Cargo Furs and Fashions. P.S. I'm enclosing a certified check for $100. <laughs> Send it away. But four days later, that's when they postal service was operating properly i got an answer and this guy congratulated me on my letter writing ability (laughs) he suggested i get out of the fur business go writing letters for somebody (laughs) and he signed it yours truly mo amsel 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 montreal p.s would you mind sending me another telephone pole And I've sent him a lot of telephone calls. I can owe him telephone calls today if I want. But I found that I could do that. And if you're having any of those problems, I hope that you too will do it. I had many other problems where I had an unmanageable life, but I wanted to share that with you because I know that sometimes this is what causes people to drink again, perhaps not the alcoholic themselves, but the spouse and the whole family, it becomes something that makes the disease even worse than it is when we're sober when it comes to financial problems. And so we did that step as a group, and we shared. And then they said, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore sanity. Now they're telling us we're insane. They told me that I had an unmanageable life. They told me that I had to be positive, and then they go to the second step and they tell me that I have to come to believe in a power greater than myself. So I'd never been in a mental hospital, so I said to some of those old-timers, I said, how can I come back from somewhere I haven't been? I'm not insane. And they said, "Cease it's you're negative thinking. They said, you are a negative thinker, and we want you to be restored to sane thinking. I was something like the negative barber. This guy slid into a barber chair one day, and he said to the barber, I'd like a haircut to last me for three weeks. Barber said, why three weeks? He said, well, I'm going on the holiday. Barber said, where are you going? First of all, I'm going to London, England. The barber says you're not going to London, England. He said, "I am." He said, "You're not." Said, "I." Am. I said, "Wouldn't go there if I were you." He said, "No, I've never been there." He said, "But I heard it's a lousy place to go. Too many people, too many cars." The guy said, "Look, it just cut my hair. If I don't like it there, I'm going on over to Paris." The barber says, "You're not going to Paris." He said, "I am." He said, "You're not." Said, "I." I wouldn't go there. He said, "No, I don't know." He says, "I've never been there." He said, "But I heard <laughs> lousy place to go." He said, "They really fleece the tourists. Guy said, "Look it, I don't care if I don't like it in Paris. I'm going to Rome." The barber says, "You're not going to Rome." He "Said Damn, am." "Said you not." "Said I." Am. "Said I wouldn't go there if I you." He said, "Too many Catholics there." <laughs> the guy said, "Look it, I'm a Catholic." "Yeah, but he said I heard different kind of a Catholic over there." <laughs> Three weeks later, the guy come back, slid into the barber's chair. The barber says, "How was your trip?" He said, "It was good." He said, "It wasn't." He said, "It was." <laughs> He says you didn't go to London. He says, I did. He says, You didn't. He says, did. He said love to have stayed there longer, but when I get on to Paris. He says, You didn't go to Paris. He says, I did. He says you didn't. He says, I did. He said, i love to have stayed there longer when I get on to Rome. He says, You didn't go to Rome. He says, I did. He says you didn't. He says did. As a matter of fact, he says a great thing happened there. He says, i got an audience with the Pope. He says, You didn't. He says, I did. He says, did did. He says, and you'll never believe what that Pope said. He says, I knelt down, kissed the Pope's ring. And he says to the barber, you'll never believe what the Pope said. And he says, what? And he says, where the hell did you get that lousy haircut? (laughs) (laughs) So I was something like the negative barber. I didn't know, but I heard, you know. And I, I, I was negative when I talked about you people. When I heard something about you, did you ever see alcoholics or Al-Anon sitting around trying to help somebody that's not there? (laughs) And they said, did you hear what old John did? Isn't that awful? (laughs) And I was that type of person. But they told me that I had to believe in something greater than myself. And they used to tell me to pray, and I'd say, Who to? And they said, Doesn't matter, just pray. They'd say at night, Pray again, say thanks. And I said, Who to? Doesn't matter, just say thanks. <laughs> and I did that. You see, I was stupid enough to do what they told me to do. And I stayed sober. And if any of you are real smart and you're having trouble, get stupid and do what the rest of us stupid people have done. (laughs) And we got sober. And it was just beautiful. I, I just enjoyed it, and all of a sudden I'm doing things, and I'm feeling better, and I'm staying sober. And then they said I had to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood Him. Man, oh man, now they're throwing that word God at me. And I realized that today, the reason that we have such a tough time making decisions even Al-Anons, is because we're afraid of making the wrong decision. Did you ever get behind an Al-Anon in a buffet breakfast or something? Man, oh man, that's the reason that all these lines are held up, you know, they can't make those decisions. (laughs) And I, I, I still have a difficult time making decisions. Tonight I was trying to decide whether I should go to the bathrooms or not before I came up here to speak. And right now I don't know whether I've made the right decision or not. (laughs) But decisions, you know, I have a friend of mine, you see, sometimes we make the wrong decision. I have a friend of mine, he was over in ireland and he's walking down the street in ireland and somebody stuck a gun in his back and he said what are you and he thought real fast and he thought if i say i'm catholic and he's protestant he's going to shoot me if i say i'm protestant he's catholic he's going to shoot me so he says i'm jewish (laughs) the guy with the gun says i'm the luckiest arab in the whole wide world (laughs) You see, sometimes they make the wrong decision. (laughs) Talking about decisions, I don't know whether you people know what a poacher is. I know Julian does, but I don't know whether anybody else does down here. Poachers, you know, are people that go out and they shoot deer out of season and in the dark and ducks and geese and everything. They fish and they do the wrong things without a license. And there was this old poacher and and the, the game warden had tried to catch him and he just couldn't. He was fishing any he wanted to fish and finally this new game warden came to town and he got dressed up just like an old tramp and he goes down and he makes friends with his old poacher. Finally about two o'clock in the afternoon the old poacher said I'm going fishing. So the game warden who he hadn't recognized he said uh, could I come with you? He said sure if you want to come fishing it's okay with me. So they go out in the middle of the stream in the boat and The old poacher reaches over and opens a box up, picks out a couple of sticks of dynamite, lights them, throws them into the lake, and boom, and out comes, up comes the fish, up comes the net, fishes, you know, practically fills the boat up, and out comes the old game warden's badge, and he says, I've finally got you. And he gives this poor old fisherman, this old poacher, a lecture. The old poacher never batted an eye. He reached over into the box once again, picked out two more sticks of dynamite, lit them, handed them over to the game warden. The game warden's sitting there with two sticks of dynamite, lighted. (laughs) And the old poacher says to him, look it, buddy, do you want to talk or do you want to (laughs) fish? He made a decision. But they asked me to make this decision and, and... I'll tell you what, I did it about as simple as this. I said, look at God, I've made a lousy job of managing my life. How about you taking over? And that's how I did it. And I went on doing what I was supposed to do. And I had to keep it simple like that. Because I find out if I try to, you know, complicate things, I get in trouble. I had to keep it that simple. There's a friend of mine back home that has a ranch. And another friend said, How did you get the name of your ranch? And he says, Well, I wanted to call it the Bar Q. My wife wanted to call it the Susie Q. My daughter wanted to call it the Susie Bar Q. And my son wanted to call it the Bar Susie Q. So we called it the Bar Q, Susie Q, Susie Bar Q, Bar Susie Q. The guy said, That's a great name, but where are the cattle? And he says, None of them ever survived the branding. And <laughs> <laughs> And I think that may happen to me if I try to complicate things. You know, I think it happens to people if they don't, if they start to complicate things, they don't survive the branding. And they go out and get drunk. Or they have a slip in Al Anon, you know? It's terrible. But I did these things just because they told me to do them and because the rest of the group were doing it. And then they told me that I had to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. And this Ernie, he was a real sly character. You know what he did with us? He said the toughest thing about doing step four is getting a pencil and a paper. And you know what he did? He brought us a pencil and a paper. And he said, I don't want anybody to have any problems with this thing. And then he took out this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he went to page 64 and page 65 and he showed us how to take step four. And he says it just deals with fears, deals with resentment, resentments, and it deals with sex. Simple as that. And he got us to write it down <clears throat> and told us how to do it. He showed us the chart. And I didn't want any of those people to get ahead of me, so I went home and did it. Came back the next week, and Ernie says, how, how many of you done it? It was just like going to school. We all put our hands up. We've all done our step four. <clears throat> I know it's ridiculous. I know you've all done your step four, too. But I'm just telling you how I had to do mine. But if any of you say in Alateen or Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous, if you haven't done a step four, I would plead with you to do it. Because, you know, there was a little guy in our group, and you know what he said? He said to me, he said, see, get what is coming to you out of this program. He said, don't jip yourself. And then he read the promises to me. On page 83 of the big book, he read the promises to me. And that's what I wanted out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I did that. I did the step forward. Then we went on to step five, where where we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And I found out the only tough thing about step five was step four. The moment I did step four, I wanted to do step five. And a lot of people say it's admit to another human being, that's not what it says. What it said to me, admit it to God, to myself and to another human being. By this time I was stupid enough that I could talk to God. And I talked it over with God. Talked it over with myself. It's not the first time I talked to myself. I'd done that for years. (laughs) And then I went to another human being and I shared it with him. And he was a little minister, Protestant, I want you to know that And I shared this with him, and I thought I'd shake him up, and I didn't. And you know, he shared a few things with me because he'd been sort of a orangutan in his day, and and he he told me a few things, and we became really good friends. Mind you, he's not preaching anymore. He quit that after my fifth step. <laughs> he's now a parole officer. But he was a fine little fellow. And then it told me in this big book, because Ernie had told us, he said, What you do after you take your fifth step, you take this big book down from the shelf and you read step six and seven. And it said you review the past five proposals to see that you haven't admitted anything. omitted it, omitted it. Because it says you are building an archway to which you can walk a free man. And you see, when that little fellow told me, don't jiff yourself, get what's coming to you, I wanted to be a free man. <clears throat> and so I took step six and seven, where it says, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings." You know, I used to swear a lot. And I used to play poker a lot, and I didn't stop gambling because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I want you to know that. I just thought, now I can be a better gambler. (laughs) And when things are against you, you're not a better gambler, sober or drunk. And I got in a lot of trouble gambling. And I remember being in a poker game once, and a man leaving the poker game, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, you swear too much. And this is sober. And I realized, and I said, I hear some good news happen at your house. And she says, well, I hope so. And I said, I, he- I heard he went to a meeting. And she said, yes. And I said, how did he enjoy the meeting? And she said, he, li- he seemed a little confused. Because he came home and said, I asked him how the meeting was, and he said, I don't know. She said, what do you mean you don't know? Because she was going to al He said, well, they prayed a little, they swore a lot, they said another prayer and we had a cup of coffee and came home. I hope that never happens in my group. I hope it never happens in any other group. And I don't think I have the right to stand up in front of you beautiful people and use profanity. And that's only my own opinion because even if I insult one person... because they told me that I could become a better person in Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me that I could live one day at a time. And they told me that that is the way Alcoholics Anonymous works, one day at a time. And each and every day I pray that I'm a little bit better than I was yesterday, but I also pray that maybe tomorrow I'll be a little bit better than I am today." And it says, Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And I realized the only way that I could be humble was by getting down on my knees. And I'd had a difficult time with this. And I can remember one time when I was delegate with a fellow by the name of Shy Walker from Chicago area. Shy has now passed away. But Shai and I were speaking at a church. Eve remembers this. Shai and I were speaking at a church in New York. And Shai told a story about how he'd come out of prison and how he so much wanted to stay sober. And he told us how he couldn't get down on his knees. And he said one night he came from working, and he's working in construction, and he had high-top boots. And quite by accident, he kicked his high-top boots underneath the bed. And he said the next morning, he got down on his knees to get his high-top boots from under the bed. And he thought, by golly, when I'm down here, I'm going to say a few words. And he did. And every night he used to boot his boots under the bed so that the next morning he'd have to get down on his knees to get his boots. And he'd say a few words. I don't know whether it works with high-top boots, because it didn't have any at that time. But, But I do know it works with ordinary shoes. I don't have to kick my boots under the bed anymore. Because I can pray whenever I want to, and I know that I'm praying to a God of my understanding. And if there's ever any definition for humility, I would say it would be the willingness to stand, the ability to stand, and stand up for what you believe in, and the willingness to kneel and to thank God for what you've received in Alcoholics Anonymous or an al or Al-Ateen. We went on to that eighth step where it said that we had to make another list of all the people we'd harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. And I made the list. And I put my own name up top because I had lost my self-respect in my own hometown. And I didn't know how to forgive myself. And I went back to that little preacher and he told me how to forgive myself. And then in step nine, it said, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I went about making those amends. And a lot of people say that they don't want to do that. The reason that I wanted to do it was because on page 83 of the big book, the promises that I talked about, and I know you all know what they are, but I like to share them with myself because I like to remember what I am entitled to in Alcoholics Anonymous. It says that we are painstaking about this phase of our development. We will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Those are the things that I am entitled to in Alcoholics Anonymous. And those are the things that I want, because I don't want to jip myself. And I'll give you an absolute guarantee, whether you're an Alateen or Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous, if you will do those steps in sequence, that you too can have those promises. Because I've been privileged to have every one of them. Because I did what Ernie asked me to do. Step 10 said that I had to continue to take personal inventory and when I was wrong, promptly admit it. Step ten is very beautiful to me because each and every night when I go to bed, I have a little prayer that I like to say. And that little prayer is a, a prayer that my grandmother taught me when I was a little boy, but I got rid of it for a lot, many, many years. But it came back to me when I started to grow spiritually. And that little prayer is and I'm going to share it with you and I hope you can use it every night but it's not easy if you get off the program and that little prayer is please God treat me tomorrow as I've treated everybody today and you know when I was sober about 10 years I want to share this with you because maybe somebody it'll happen to them I forgot who I was and what I was and where I'd come from. I stopped doing step 10. I didn't take an inventory every night. I became a big shot in my business. I became a big shot in Alcoholics Anonymous, so I thought. I used to go to meetings with an attitude something like this. And this is really sick, but I have to share it with you. I would say to myself, you lucky people, here I am. Perhaps some of you may want some counseling after the meeting, well, maybe I can give you a few minutes. I would go to the penitentiary meetings. I never missed meetings, but I would go with that type of an attitude. And I had this big job, and one day my boss called me into the office. And it seemed the store that I was working in, I was managing the largest ladies' wear store in the province of Saskatchewan. And the province of Saskatchewan, incidentally, is about three times the size of Texas. Just thought I'd throw that in. (laughs) And I was managing this large ladies' wear store, and I was looking after the fur department for five stores. And I thought I was big. And my boss called me in, and it seemed that the store wasn't quite big enough for the two of us. And it seemed he wasn't about to leave. And he fired the great C. Scorical. And I can remember leaving that store that night with an attitude something like this. Well, they won't last long now. I want you to know that they're still there and they're still millionaires and they're doing pretty good. And I want to share this with you because One day, a little niece of mine, or a cousin of mine, came to visit me. She was in Alcoholics Anonymous, and she came from the west coast of Canada just to visit me. And I know today that she didn't just come to visit me. I know that she came because God sent her to see me, because maybe he could do something, she could do something for me. And I went downtown, and I was going to a deal something like this about 300 miles away from Prince Albert. And I went downtown and I bought some brand new clothes and I went down to see my little cousin and I stood up in front of her in my big egotistical way and I said, well, kid, how do I look? And she said these few words and I'm going to share them with you. She said, you look real good on the outside, Cease. how are you really on the inside? And I went to Flin Flon, Manitoba with a dear old man by the name of Dave Murray. And Dave didn't talk to me because he knew that maybe I was thinking about changing my way in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went into Winnipeg, Manitoba after that roundup, and I spent two days in a hotel room just talking to God. And I decided to go back to my hometown and open a business of my own. That's not important because I had to do something. But the important thing was is that I went back and went back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I had never been away from meetings, but I went back with a changed attitude. Because my little cousin said, you look real good on the outside, Cease. How are you really on the inside? Today, I take step 11, and I take step 10, and I take it every day because I know how important it is. Step 11, which said to me that I had to sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understood it, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. The very fact that I can say that is a miracle. The fact that I know what it means is a bigger miracle, because for a long time in my life that's not the way I thought. Each and every day, you know what I have to do? I have to take this big book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and each and every morning I go into a little room and I have my prayer and my meditation. I open this big book up at page 86 and I read page 86, 87, and 88 and it tells me how to run my day. I read the prayer on page 63, which is the third step prayer. I read the prayer on page 76, which is the seven step prayer. And I read the last part of A Vision for You. I read other books. I may read something by Vincent Peale or by Emmett Fox. I even read the Bible. I know that's not conference-approved literature, but I read it anyway. I take a chance. (laughs) And you know why I do this? Because one day, many years ago, I found myself driving downtown having an argument with a man who lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is the west coast of Canada, and I was going to meet him at a convention in Montreal, which is 2,200 miles east of me, and I'm I'm having an argument with him. He's not there. He's still at the west coast of Canada. And all of a sudden I start having the argument out loud. I'm driving down the street. I come to a stop sign, and I'm really giving it to him. People looking at me. And this is hard to do because you have to figure out what he's saying and he's not there. And I got to in front of my store and I wasn't finished talking to him, so I drove around the block a couple of times. And I got to my store quarter to nine in the morning completely exhausted. And I knew that wasn't the way to live. And I started to do my prayer and meditation each and every morning because I want what is coming to me out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you see, when we go out into that cruel old world each and every day, there's a lot of people out there that don't know we're afflicted with, alcohol, with, with the sickness of alcoholism. And they're going to aggravate our disease. They're going to say unkind things to us. And they're going to hurt us. And we've got to be ready for them. Sometimes those people that we're living with, you know, just as you're going out the door, they ask you stupid questions. Like, are you coming home for supper? <laughs> and you've got to be ready. You just can't take a chance on people like that. And so each and every day I get myself ready for those people by reading page 86, 87, and 88, because it tells me how to live. And that reminds me of another story about another old poacher that they just couldn't catch. And one day this game warden went out and he lay down outside this old poacher's shack, lay down in the hay, and he thinks tomorrow morning when he comes out of there, I'll get him. This old game warden's name was Ralph. Four o'clock in the morning he hears the door creaking open, (laughs) and he said, now I'm going to get him. The old poacher poked his head out and he says, you want some breakfast, Ralph? <laughs> old Ralph gets up and he goes in and he sits down and he's eating bacon and eggs. And he says, how did you know I was out there? And he says, I didn't. But every morning for the past five years I open that door and say, want some breakfast, Ralph? <laughs> you see, you've got to be Ready? because you don't know who's going to be out there to get you. And I do this every morning. And I walk into my store, and when my staff comes in, I greet them the way that I want them to greet my customers. And you know, there's people that can really upset you. I can remember when the interest rates went up, and we were cut, caught with big inventories. And one morning, my bank manager called me in. And you know what he did to me? He put me in receivership. I don't know whether you know what that is in the United States, because things aren't too good down here. (laughs) But that means that he let somebody else run your business like an accountant. (laughs) And you pay all the money directly to the bank. And you're just a manager of your store. And because of Alcoholics Anonymous, Because of this beautiful program, I was able to handle that situation. I was able to stay in the fur business. When people are going down all around me, I was able to handle it, because I did my reading every morning and I knew how to handle those people, because God showed me how. And I want to share a little something with you that happened one morning when I was doing my reading. I have two little granddaughters and one little grandson. And you know, our oldest daughter, she was. we gave her just everything, what she needed, you know, material things, love, and she's a beautiful girl. But you know what she did? She married a Catholic, you know, an Italian one, they're the worst kind. And, and when they had that first little grandchild of ours, she was just beautiful. I don't know why, but she was and I used to come from places like this and they lived outside of Toronto and when I'd come into Toronto I'd phone them and this little girl her name is Anna Louisa, <laughs> Italian Catholic and she was always ready to come home with Grandpa and the first time she came home with me the next morning I was doing my reading and she knocked on the door and Babe said you can't go in there honey Grandpa's doing his reading So she said, I have something to tell her. So I said, let her come in. She came in and I took her up on my knee and I said, what did you want to tell me, honey? And she says, I just wanted to tell you that I love you. I don't know whether that means anything to you. But what it meant to me was, here I was, a man that came to Alcoholics Anonymous, unable to give love, unable to receive it. And a little girl could get up on my knee, a little Catholic girl, (laughs) and tell me that she loved me. And I could tell her that I loved her. And she has a little sister. Her name is Cella Maria. (laughs) That, too, is Italian Catholic. (laughs) And she just leaps up from anywhere she is, and she jumps up on my knee and tells me she loves me. I say, I love her, too. And she's just beautiful. They have a little cousin. His name is Jason. Jason goes many, many places with me. He was at the International Conference with me. And if you're not in Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon or Alatine, you're nobody with Jason. He's Protestant. (laughs) And one day he and I were out washing the car and Kentucky Fried Chicken was right next door and he said, Grandpa, why don't we get some some chicken for Grandma for supper? And I said, I think it's a good idea, Jason. He said, while we're at it, maybe we should get some for ourselves. You know, I don't know about him. He's only nine years old, but he's plenty swift. So we got the chicken, and we got home, and we have their grandchildren. They have a little table. They always like to sit there. And he asked me to sit at this little table with him and we're sitting there and he says you know what I want to be when I grow up grandpa and I said what do you want to be Jason and he said I want to be a grandpa and I want to have a store and I want to be the boss I don't know whether that means anything to you but what it meant to this old orangutan drunk it meant that here is a little guy that loved me and wanted to be like me the greatest compliment that I've probably ever received in my life And I only wish that he had come with me on this trip, because he and I get along real great. It told me in step 12 that I could have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, and that I could carry the message to the alcoholic that still suffers, and that I could practice these principles in all my affairs. A spiritual awakening to me is simply a personality change. Thursday morning when I got up about 5.30 in the morning to have to catch an airplane to come to be with you beautiful people. As the chairman said, I drove 100 miles to catch the plane. If I was to say to myself when I was shaving that morning, I have to go to the session by the sea today. I'm going to have to fly all day long. I would have been played out before I finished shaving. Do you know what I said? I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying, see, so old boy, you're a pretty lucky guy, because you've been invited to Maryland and you've never been to Maryland before. And that's the way that I try to run my life, because I have had a personality change through those beautiful steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you see, I don't know when my PR time is going to be. And so I want to be today where I want to be. And it so happens today that I want to be with you people. The people that I love most. The people of Al Anon and Alateen and Alcoholics Anonymous. And then they told me I could try to carry the message to the alcoholic and still suckers. I'm a privileged guy because I get many, many 12 step calls. And I think it's important that I look as good as those two guys looked to me the night that they came to see me in that hospital. And that's why I believe that we're based on attraction rather than promotion. I don't think that I should go around with my chin on my navel. I think that I should walk down the street with my head up high and smile, because I've received everything possible from Alcoholics Anonymous. And they told me that I could practice these principles in all my affairs. What principles are they talking about? I believe they're talking about the principles that I learned by taking those steps in sequence. And you know, there's sometimes we don't practice those principles. I once heard of a Al-Anon gal, she was probably from this area because she had a lot of money, And she was trying to sober up her old boy, and she couldn't get him sober no how. (laughs) And finally she took him on a trip. And she took him overseas, and he was drunk when he got on the plane, he got drunker on the plane, and he got drunker when he got off the plane. And they went for a walk. And they came to one of those great big wishing wells that they have in Europe. And they stood up in the wishing well and they threw their money in. And Poor old drunk fell in and drowned. And you know what that sweet little Al-Anon gal said? Holy malarkey, this thing really works. You know. <laughs> I don't think that's practice of the principles. There was another Al-Anon gal from Baltimore or Washington or somewhere, and she got in the bus one day. And she's sitting there, and the lady sat down beside her, and finally the aldone gal said, Holy malachia, I, I forgot to pay the bus driver for riding on the bus. And the lady beside her said, Well, look, at it. the bus driver's not worried about it, why should you worry about it? And she said, Look, at it. I just joined a program that demands rigorous honesty. The lady beside her says, Oh, buy yourself a halo. Forget about the bus driver. She got out, and she went and paid the bus driver, and she come back, and she said, I told you that honesty paid off. I gave him a dollar and he gave me change for five. (laughs) I don't think that's practice in the program. But we all know what we have to do. Try it tonight when you go to bed. Say, please, God, treat me tomorrow as I've treated everybody today. See if you can do that. It's a great feeling, because I've experienced it. I want to thank the committee for allowing me to be with you at the session on the seat. I've had a great time. And there's a little town just outside of Omaha, Nebraska. It's a little town called Boys town. And as you drive up to this little town, you see a statue of one little boy carrying another little boy. And underneath there are simple words something like this no Lord he is not heavy for he is my brother and I think that depicts what every one of us if we have gotten what is coming to us whether we're in Al-Anon, al or Alcoholics Anonymous that is the way we feel about this beautiful program and as I said I want to thank the committee I want to thank you, a beautiful audience, because you make it so easy for a speaker when you listen, and you've been just a fantastic audience. Last but not least, I want to thank God for giving me one more beautiful day to do the things that I think I'm supposed to do, and that day it so happens that I'm supposed to be at the session by the seat. And I want to leave this simple little thing with you. And I hope that it will help you as much as it helped me. Every one of you out there look real good on the outside. How are you really on the inside? Thank you and God bless you.
2: He has certainly given us a lot of food for thought. And thank God of my understanding that we were fortunate enough to get him to be with us. You know, it's amazing sitting up here, standing up here and looking over this beautiful crowd, as she said. And it is a beautiful crowd. I got a warm feeling inside after working with the session for as many years as I have. I have my AA family back home again. And if you'd like to know how many was in here tonight, there was 2,750 people. The 1983 contract has been signed. 1984 contract will be signed before we leave Ocean City. We try to keep two years in advance. I don't know who will be your chairman next year, but the convention hall is uh, tied up for the session. And I want to thank you all for being here this evening. How has your week been? We have another beautiful speaker tomorrow morning. I've heard her, and I know. So be sure that you make it. At this time, I would like to ask Reverend Thomas McKelvey, Coke Methodist Church of Stonehill, Maryland, to give us the benediction and follow with the Lord's Prayer.
3: So I wanted to uh, reach my hand over here and thank you for all that you said and did. But then I started to think about that minister that you said you knew, and he left the ministry. So I didn't know whether I should shake your hand or not. But but then I thought, well, I'll, I'll shake his hand. Maybe that'll make him a minister. But then I thought some more, and I realized he is a minister. And indeed... And indeed, all of you are ministers as you touch one another's lives. So let's, with that in mind, bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you ever so much for this experience that we've shared together, for your love that's moved among us, for the times that you've worked through each of us to touch one another's lives, to bring new life, new possibilities, and a bright future. We thank you ever so much for each day that lies ahead, each sober day, each fulfilling day that comes to us as a gift from you. We thank you for this fellowship that will be with us now and always. Amen. Let us pray together our Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and
1: the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep